0: Yeah, so I figure in today's episode, we could just talk about some of my reflections on applying Psalm 103 and the messages thereof into my own life or how I think about it and have you reflect a bit on that live. That sounds great. Um, So one of the aspects that really has struck me over the past couple years contemplating Psalm 103 and its place in Vespers is the concept of creation being an eternal reality or or this understanding of creation being not just something that happened once a long time ago but something that is a constant um, a constant thing that every moment of our life is creation and in fact it's the cross of christ if we can point to any moment of creation it wouldn't be God saying, let there be light, it would be, it is finished, right? Christ on the cross would be, would be kind of, that would be a a more orthodox way of of looking at it. Um, Am I getting that right? So looking at, looking at creation, not just as something that happened a long time ago, but every time I'm at Vespers, I think, oh, this is the moment of creation. Like this is, God is alive and working in my life and the life of this community now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things that is so disappointing, I suppose, about um, certain strands of Christianity that, you know, identify as creationist, but all they want to do is talk about a moment in time and to somehow explicate or define what that moment looked like. Whereas the reality is so much more interesting and so much more dynamic. God as creator is always God as creator, you know back then, as it were, in in Genesis at the beginning, you know, now and forevermore, creating, always at work, always drawing every aspect of creation, every element of creation towards him and caring and ordering and guiding Mm -hmm. and directing um, us at all times. And absolutely, that's precisely what we're asked to do at the beginning of Vespers, is to enter into A full relationship with God as Creator, in in that sense, and it's I just say so much more interesting than than that very reductionist creationist vision that is sometimes portrayed, you know, as opposed to say a a scientific you know worldview, and and, and to my you know view of things actually the the scientist who is aware of the dynamic nature of creation through time uh the universe unfolding actually has a more uh you know a fuller and and richer vision of creation than the one who would say i'm a creationist and it happened 6000 years ago or whenever it's defined and and that's quite a sad and reduced vision of things isn't it
0: i feel it affecting my life in the sense of that conversation I'm having with with somebody or the liturgy we're serving in that moment or uh maybe even doing the dishes or or any every aspect of my life is is just as much this moment of creation of, of reclaiming the creation for God as let there be light is. Um so I I think for me personally Psalm 103 has really helped me Look at every single moment of my life as a eschatologically important moment, not just as um, so. In a in a more deistic worldview, you would have this God who's in the background, who sort of it's like he he spins the top and then stays back and watches it turn. Whereas the God in the God in the conception of orthodoxy would be present everywhere and filling all things. And I think that that's what we get out of Psalm 103.
1: You know, certainly, and and you're right to point out that it's a forward vision as well, right? The God that we're given to worship in this psalm and that we are set before is a God who is you know, moving through time to bring everything to fruition. And so you pointed to you know the cross, the cross and the uh the that it is finished, you know, moment, which is really the pinnacle of creation, but in the rest of creation has yet to catch up to the cross. The rest of the the of us as human beings have yet to become full human beings like our God and Savior. The God-Man Jesus Christ, um, you know, has has shown to us, and so when we are given this ordered creation, this this creation that God has, ha, you know, continues to care for and to to work with, we're also given a picture of the future of, of that new heaven, the new earth, the new creation that that we are all being asked to to participate in, and of course that should then have an effect in every moment of our lives, right? There is no moment of our life that is not touched by that, by that reality if we only can open our eyes to see it. So in some senses, what this psalm is trying to do is say, open your eyes, notice, pay attention, see the world for what it really is, which is a sacrament of God's love and grace and his self-giving, his self-offering on behalf of all. And we are to respond to that by, of course, offering ourselves back and entering into that mystery.
0: There's a big environmentalist movement happening now in in, in the world, and uh, I'm wondering have you have you had the chance to talk to anybody about Psalm one hundred and three and its and its um, relationship with maybe a Christian understanding of environmentalism, or or how how can Orthodox Christians uh, contribute to the conversation about taking care of our our planet relative to Psalm 103. I'm not sure if you've had any um, opportunity through the, the Toronto School of Theology or, or any conferences or anything like that.
1: Nothing formal, but I mean, it absolutely should inform our thinking on this. I mean, the sad reality today is people tend to divide into one of two camps, right? On the one hand, there are those who would define themselves as environmentalist or you know green uh interested in you know protecting uh the environment or doing something to stop climate change human human generated climate change and, and and all of these things but the cast uh to that movement is often quite a a negative one it's a it's it's one without a lot of hope it's it sometimes comes with you know loaded laden with despair with with a very negative Kind of view of of us as human beings within within the the, the creation, uh, it 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 often is not setting a lot of hope out in, in in front of us. And of course, the reaction against that from a lot of Christians is to say, "Well, hang on, we don't want any part in that." So so clearly, we must not be environmentalists. We must be on this other side, whatever that is. That you know, stewardship of 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 creation means we can rule over it. We can do with it as we please. We're here to build to to. Expand to to multiply, and so you get this divide, uh, you know, between the kind of negative environmentalist and maybe the more positive, you know, ex, uh, you know person dedicated to the the kind of subjugation and exploitation of, of the earth and its resources. But actually, the Christian view, view should be neither one nor the other, right? Um, what Psalm 103 sets in front of us is a truly environmental vision. It's a, it's a vision where of course the environment is absolutely you know you know pristine and to be protected because it is god sharing his life with us god is so intricately involved with his creation that he you know fills all things as you say you know in that famous prayer to to the holy spirit everywhere present filling all things so on the one hand yes the you know everything about the environment is, is, is important and, and to be protected. And on the other hand, it doesn't come laden with that, that despondency or despair, because God is in control. This is the other message of this psalm that the environmentalist, you know, the political or, or you know, maybe secular environmentalist tends to forget. There is a hopeful vision here, because God's ongoing involvement in creation means that, You know, there is a loving God who orders all things, who is in control despite you know everything we might do, drawing everything towards this telos, this uh, this end of, of perfection and wholeness in the new creation and so forth. So we're neither one side nor the other, as it were. We should come kind of right down the middle here and, yes, do everything we can. You know, I, I fully support uh, His Holiness uh, Patriarch uh, Bartholomew of Constantinople, who has been known as the Green Patriarch for all of his many statements over many years in, in protection of the environment, but it doesn't come, you know, laden with the environmental political baggage of of kind of cultural catastrophe and despair that often that movement does. And we should really resist, you know, any sort of other side that says, well, because we're not that, we must therefore, you know, just set about doing whatever we can and, and, you know, this world will end anyway. You know, we know that just like the resurrection body it somehow takes up our our earthly body with it. It it's obviously far surpasses it, right? We we see Christ in his resurrection body is able to pass through, through walls, and yet his body is no longer in the tomb, right? And he's able to eat. So there's this, there's both a you know a symmetry and an asymmetry between the new creation and the creation. Well, we we know that we need to look after the world here, but we don't do so ever without a hopeful attitude and outlook that says God loves and cares for all. And so God is in heaven, all will be well, but let's cooperate with him, right? That's the Christian environmentalist. Cooperate with the loving and caring God who wants us to look after the earth and don't fall into one of these political camps that seem to be endlessly warring and causing, you know, strife in in our time.
0: Yeah, so we've covered a couple of the topics that I personally contemplate one being um, what does it mean? What does it mean to contemplate the moment of creation, but also the environmental impact uh, or how to treat the environment relative to the psalm? I want to talk a little bit about two things, two more things in the psalm that I find challenging or interesting, and one of them is the reference to wine making glad the heart of man. Right, um, this this concept that wine exists for the almost pleasure or um good experience of of humans these these aspects of creation that give us joy in life um and that's one thing that i i'm hoping you can comment on a little bit is is it okay to like i don't know drink wine and uh, to what degree is is creation like good for us to use for our own pleasure? And I'm not sure if this question is making sense or... It does. Ask-
1: I, I suppose the confusion comes in in terms of understanding what pleasure is, right? Um, there is a pleasure that is a pleasure that is self-centered and of the passing away age, of the age that is that is dying the age that is being replaced with with the kingdom of god and that's a pleasure that says i can use things f- for my own benefit you know i you know we take things and their purpose is to serve me that's exploitation that's that kind of that view of the created world that says it's here to serve me And people have taken license, Christians have taken license from, you know, God's command to to exercise sovereignty, you know, over over creation and so forth. But in some ways, this psalm kind of sets us in our place, right? It's not anthropocentric in the way that we might like as kind of late capitalist uh, consumer culture You know, folks, uh, we clearly belong in the the panoply of creation. You know, we are like the others, the other animals, even that are fed with the springs that God, you know, makes gush forth. We we are involved in this kind of cycle of death and life, and and of having to find food and and of having to look after ourselves. But knowing that all that's set within this stage that God has put into place, His temple in which He is in charge, He cares and loves, you know, for us. But we're kind of given a, you know, yes, maybe at the, the summit of uh, of that created universe, but we aren't God. You know, we are not there to take things for, for our own benefit. And yet there is joy in that. There's joy in having our place in creation. There's joy in being who we are meant to be, which is to say recipients of God's grace and the ones who are able self-reflectively of all the parts of creation. We are the only self-reflective part, right? Um, even the greatest of, uh, you know, of our mammal brethren, you know, is not capable of that sort of introspection and reflection, you know, that we are. So that's the capacity to worship ultimately. I mean, as this psalm points out, everyone else, plants and trees and rocks and animals worship naturally. That's, you know, that, that, that's their orientation. We have the choice. We have to reflect, we have to then take what has been given to us and either offer it back to God or offer it to ourselves as as a kind of idolatry. And so the pleasure, the joy that we can take in creation is actually in not exploiting it, but in turning it to what we could call sacramental ends, which is to say offering of praise and thanksgiving towards god and for the sharing of communion with him amongst you know ourselves and we pointed out before that you know the both the bread and the wine that are referenced here have clear sacramental you know overtones in the old covenant you know because bread and wine were used in in hebrew ritual but you know obviously they get their their pinnacle their summit in the the christian eucharist where bread and wine actually become the means of sharing the divine life and what is that if not joy you know what is that if not the gladdening of our heart, and of course, as we know in the scriptures, every time you see the word heart, it's not just the heart, right? It's it's a kind of synecdoche, or you know, it's a it's a symbol for the whole of the, the entirety of us, starting from our innermost being. And so, what gladdens the heart of man is what is is the most fulfilling, right? That's a way of saying this is the thing that that really makes us who we are. You know, as Saint Augustine said, that our hearts are restless until they find their home, you know, in God. And so this is what, you know, if, if we recognize creation for what it is, our home, the home we have in God, if that's how we open our eyes, that's what we perceive, that's how we live our lives, then we will be glad. We'll be able to take pleasure in in everything. You know, there was a famous early church um, ascetic, you know, you can imagine, who lived his life as a faster, you know, a, depriving himself of of so much. And yet he defines the faith as Christianity is food and drink. You know, that's fascinating, you know. So things that, you know, even the most ascetic amongst the Christians can say, Christianity fundamentally is food and drink. What does that mean? It means it's it's the place where we are nourished. It's the place where we find joy and communion in, in, in a shared meal, you know and there's no accident that it's a meal that's at the heart of our christian ritual you know and it in it you have to take from creation you have to manipulate it right you have to grow the wheat and grind it and then you have to you know bake it and to make that bread that becomes the body of christ in in the eucharist and that that whole process is joyful from beginning to end because it's our way of of partaking in the glory of god as as he shares and casts abroad on his creation
0: one of the other big aspects of something that you mentioned in these past uh, in this psalm 103 series has been the concept of death prior to life and this this cycle of death and and we had a little conversation a few episodes back about the relationship between the theological understanding of Adam and Eve in paradise, who had life, and then sin entered, and through sin, death. So in this, in one sense, we are alive, and then we die. But then you have this other sense that happens in scripture in Psalm 103, and in other places, uh, in some of the early church fathers like um, Ignatius, where you have, it's, it's almost the reverse. It's, we start with death, and then we are alive after that. And that's one thing that I'm only just starting to contemplate how does that all how does that all work together? How can we actually talk about that in our churches, um, in a in a responsible way? Um, so I'm wondering, do you have any further reflections on this uh, death then life model as opposed to the life then death model? I I don't I don't suppose those actually are contradictory. It just seems to be pointing at different framing it for a different theological purpose
1: that's right i mean it, it helps actually to set this in that broader context of what creation is for because I say we, we're so imprisoned and trapped by a frame of reference that says you know things start you know and we're kind of in the middle frame of the story and then things will will end, you know, the beginning, middle and end. But but scripture plays with that all the time and, and our faith plays with that all the time and, and reverses and upends it uh, in really, really interesting, you know, ways. We are told, you know, by uh, the Apostle Paul that when we are baptized, we die, you know, and, and clearly, you know, it, we don't physically die in that process. If we did, I think, you know, we would have a hard time, you know, practicing our faith in, in the world today if we literally were putting people to death. But we need to understand that is what's happening. That is what happens. You know, we are born into this world to die. And what we do in the, the, the sacrament of the mystery of baptism is that we choose to die earlier than we would otherwise. And we do that voluntarily so that our death can be like Christ's death. Because the only man who was ever born who died voluntarily who didn't need to die. Everyone else was born to die. The only one who did not need to die was Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And he voluntarily, We're in, it's insisted upon in our liturgy and in, in patristic writings, that the death of Christ was a voluntary laying down of his life. That's what made that life, his death, life-giving. And so we, too, have to participate in that. If we are to partake in the kingdom that he inaugurates by his suffering, death, and resurrection, we too must die voluntarily. And how do we do that? St. Paul tells us that all those who have been baptized into to, to Christ, you know, are die with him and rise with him. And they have put on Christ, put on the life of Christ himself. That is what it means to be the new creation. And so in that sense... Death precedes life, we aren't alive until we die. We aren't capable of a hu- full human life until we set down this limited existence that we have in this fallen world, this age that we uh, abide in now. We have to die to that in order to to live you know to the other. and so in some senses, the whole of this life is about making us malleable, pliable clay from which god can form us as proper human beings right yeah. so there was this idea in in the early church about uh the fact that the the purpose of our life is to be kind of kind of become malleable clay malleable earth the stuff from which you know we see in genesis god creates adam but you know, we have to create that by laying down our lives in such a way. And in the letter of Barnabas, uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 9, uh, it is written, The human being is earth that suffers. So earth that suffers. And that's uh, that sense in which we need to go through a process to make our clay, the stuff that we we consist of, capable of you know, the potter, God as, as the, the the fashioner of all, using that clay uh, in a malleable way. We have to cooperate with the hands of the the potter. We have to be clay that, that doesn't fight back against the potter and his wheel. And uh, I think it's a beautiful way of, of kind of framing that idea of, you know, laying down our life now in order to become something greater, that this life is not clay that is cast in the fire and and therefore set for all time, we actually are meant to make ourselves earth that suffers, earth that is capable of, of, of shaping and formation. And one of the interesting things then to think about in terms of, of this psalm is, you know, as you've been asking, how are we to respond, you know, to this world? How do we go out into this world and everything? Uh, we need this world you know, we need to respond to this world, have our eyes open to this world in such that it is indeed breathtaking, right? Do you see how that interesting play on words that we get in English? We 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 stand before a beautiful vista, you know, we see the sea and the mountains and maybe a rainbow and God's beauty and everything. We say it's breathtaking. What takes away our breath, which is to say we have to die. We have to look at this world and die in order to partake in what it points
0: us at,
1: which is the fulfillment of creation, the, God, the kingdom of God.
0: The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions to get access to these episodes and to join our online community you can become a patron of the show we can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners to become a patron head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish again that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and now back to the show So if if I were to, let's place this in a situation, like a lot of people, I've experienced family on, on deathbeds or family that are dying or um, different situations like that. How, how can this come to in, how can this psalm help us navigate those situations, those real life we're not standing in church, we're in a nursing home or we're in a hospital, um, How can this psalm, relative to that idea of death in our Christian life, help us navigate those tough life situations?
1: Well, see, that's the the beauty of our understanding of what baptism is all about. If you have been baptized and you are aware of what your baptism means, your actual physical death is an administrative exercise. It's a formality because you have already died to this world. You are already alive in Christ. And so laying down, you know, your life, shuffling off this mortal coil is simply a matter for, you know, your executors, your funeral director, you know, whoever else is going to be looking after the, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's and, and so forth. We have nothing to fear. That's why the early Christian, you know, could go to face martyrdom, knowing they're dead now and would be alive in Christ when they were actually put to death, you know, physically. There's nothing to fear. It's why we sing those hymns at Pascha with such, you know, vigor and dynamism that Christ has trampled down death. And that his resurrection resounds through all of the, the, the world that we can now partake in, in in the kingdom of God. Our own death, should, we should never fear. You know, when we face, you know, pandemics or, you know, upheavals in this world and everything, Christians have nothing to fear. If you understand what you've done in baptism and partaken in baptism, and you continue to live through the participation in the, the divine Eucharist, which is the meal, the banquet of the kingdom, then you're already dead, right? You, the, the The physical you know, exercise is something that is very easily undertaken. We have nothing to fear. And so we can go as pastors, as brothers and sisters to those who are are approaching their, their, their physical end in, in this world, and we can bring them a message of great joy, of consolation. We have to invite them to fully partake of that baptism that they've had, right? We have to have them understand that. And that's where our kind of pastoral and uh, apostolic you know duty lies but having understood that they have nothing to fear if Christ is my my light and my salvation i have nothing to fear that's what we are asked to to remember at all times
0: so i agree with everything you said but for the sake of having a great discussion i'm going to i'm going to do a little bit of pushback here um we There's also this other side to the whole death issue in, in Orthodox Christianity, one of them being obviously Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus, right? There's this mourning that is condoned by the actions of Christ himself. Um, there's also the, the same person who wrote those great paschal hymns and, and the canon is the same person who wrote the funeral canon as well, uh, talking about where has the beauty of the body gone? It's all gone. Life is uh, a shadow and a dream. So how can we how can we square maybe the 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 upside of death with the depressing side of death if you want to put it that way
1: Well it's this overlap of the ages that always catches us right so absolutely there the, are the reality of sickness and suffering and death in this physical sense I mean I'm not saying it has no meaning or it has no no value i'm not saying christians who are you know suffering from terminal illnesses have no pain or suffering that would be a nonsense to to insist on that uh nor am i saying that it's not appropriate it's in fact highly appropriate to to Co suffer, right? To 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 accompany people through that. I think one of the most important things that we do as as Christians, and this has long been the case from the first centuries of the church, is accompany people through illness and death, to be there with them, and to to note the reality of it. And as you rightly say, our funeral service is pulls no punches when it comes to talking about the the brutality of sickness and of death and of of what that, you know, looks like. Um, And there's a sense in which it didn't have to be this way. You know, had we only cooperated with the loving and caring creator from the get-go, we could have had a kind of easier trajectory into the fullness of the new creation um, and so forth. So there's always that lament, that mourning that, you know, something, an opportunity was missed, right? And that we are somehow having to do it the hard way. And that is to live through, you know, this, this current reality, knowing, of course, that not only can we accompany one another, but the one who accompanies us is the one who took upon himself all of the suffering, all of the misery, all of the pain of the world, and and who, who has emptied it of its ultimate meaning, because he has brought us now through our own death voluntary death into into the kingdom so yeah i mean we have to very sensitively you know work through those two different um layers of the thing but there is no sense in which there is any ultimate purpose or or uh in uh, reality to the suffering and death in this world because this age has already been emptied of its powers and authority and christ is recreating us through his resurrection for the kingdom, uh, which is already present in our midst. So
0: is uh, so the so- Psalm 103 paints the life and death cycle of humans as a natural part of the created world, as far as I understand. So is it wrong or is it right, or neither, for an Orthodox Christian person to just think of death as just another part of life. Oh, grandma's gone, but that's okay. It's just a part of life. Um I've I've heard I've heard different orthodox people respond differently to this kind of question that some would sort of fight against physical death as a very negative thing. Um yeah, I'm wondering have you heard any of these arguments or this discussion or Yes,
1: yeah, is- of course, that's the the contemporary Thing to do, right, is to sort of just see death as, you know, a, a ne- part of a natural cycle of things. In the same way that we wouldn't have spring and summer if we didn't have the death, the dying of autumn and the death of winter, right? Um And in fact, that's what is life-bearing in that natural cycle. And I mean, go down to the level of particle physics, and things are happening on, in kind of death and 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 resurrection all of the time. And so maybe. You know, human life and death is just part of that sort of natural rhythm would be the uh, the kind of contemporary thinking about that and gives rise to, you know, we no longer mourn at funerals. We just have a celebration of life and everything. And, you know, there's truth to that. It's not the ultimate truth, of course. The ultimate truth, of course, is that, you know, as we have said, we need to die to this life in order to be made ready for the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom. And so, uh, you know, we can certainly detect and celebrate all these natural cycles of life and death and so forth. But we cannot pretend that, you know, the, the death and resurrection of Christ is somehow just part of this sort of cyclical, you know, nature of things. There is an age that we are part of, that we are born into, and that we die out of, that that age is passing away, and the age to come has been inaugurated. And that fundamentally eschatological and purposeful, right, teleological, to give it this, you know, philosophical term, it means oriented towards an end, a purpose. That's very different from a just a naturally occurring cycle that you know, which is more in keeping with a kind of Orientalist, you know, whether Buddhist or Hindu or whatever, where uh, this vision of, you know, things just kind of go around in cycles and all all things will just repeat and and so forth. We don't have that. I mean, fundamentally, uh, both Jewish and Christian thought is eschatological or teleological, directed towards an end, directed towards a purpose. And in this psalm that we're, we're seeing, although, though, yes, there's cyclical aspects to nature, it's still... Very clear that God is in control and God has a purpose for all of this right and that we mustn't forget you know we can rhapsodize about seeing the beauty of the seasons and so forth and about the the cycles in in nature the the you know even the the cycles of the moon and so forth you know these are all to be celebrated and give glory to God but fundamentally the universe, is directed towards an end, towards a purpose, and that's a very different way of thinking about life and death. Although, as I say, we we reverse the normal, you know, expectation there, and we say we are already dead, you know, if we are just alive in this age, and we must lay down that life in order to take part uh, in in the new kingdom. And so that that's a you know profoundly uh, powerful, but also very shocking message to bring to the world. But it can it takes us out of what we could maybe otherwise just have as a kind of cyclical nature or understanding of nature and and the world.
0: Mm-hmm. The final aspect that I would want to talk about one of the one of the ways that Psalm one hundred three has affected my life outside of church is that of thinking about science and scientific inquiry. Now, I'm not a scientist of by any means at all, um, but I respect. Scientists. The scientists tell me the world is round. I believe that the world is round, uh, and um, and it seems that in Psalm one hundred three, there is a very strong order to the world, and and there's almost this invitation to investigate and participate. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about the relationship between Psalm one hundred three and the biblical tradition with scientific inquiry. Um, it's I, needless to say that. Some Christians, um, some even within the Orthodox tradition, have a very strong bent against scientific inquiry uh, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that
1: yeah well that would be a sad conclusion to draw from from this psalm, of course, because what this psalm says is that everything around us in the world reflects you know who God is, right not in a Direct sense, we know we don't see the world as God, that would be pantheism, right? Um, but there is a reflection of God's order and care and love in the entire world. and so if science is an exploration of that world in order to understand more about it, which of course it is in all of its different you know dimensions, then now, not necessarily. But certainly it allows for the opportunity for that to be a profoundly worshipful exercise, right? We can embark on scientific inquiry into aspects of creation for no other ultimate purpose than to say, we want to know more about God's love and care and ordering of the universe and how fascinating that all is. And I think that fundamentally has been the stance of the Orthodox Church for the last two millennia. Uh, it was really fundamentally the stance of, of, the, of the believers under the Old covenant as well. and I'll give you an example. This psalm itself does not have its origin in Hebrew tradition. Originally, there is a version of this psalm that we've found in you know the, the, the tombs of the Pharaohs in Egypt. It comes from Egypt and it, from around the year 1400 BC. Uh, almost phrase for phrase some of the aspects of this so clearly what's happened here is the jews you know presumably those who were captive in in egypt have taken what they knew as a hymn of creation uh which was uh, you know originally cast as a, a hymn to the sun god ra you know um and they've now taken and repurposed it and directed it to the Lord, which we've said before was Yahweh. It's that personal name uh, that they they give or God gave himself and shared with, with his covenant people. And so bless the Lord, bless Yahweh, my soul, for all of these reasons. And using the same phrases from this, you know, Egyptian, uh, you know, hymn, which was, of course, completely couched within the cosmology and science of Egypt at the time, right? This is how they understood the world to be, you know, kind of kind of made. So you find this at various times in, in uh, history through, you know, both the formation of the scriptures and then later Christian tradition. Whatever the science of the day was, Christians take, they're probably involved in to begin with, but, but they take and reappropriate it directing it as a way of praising God. Bless the Lord, my soul, because of this. So today we can say, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, particle physics, you know, quantum mechanics, uh, advanced biology, uh, the, the periodic table, you know, which was, of course, an Orthodox Christian who devised that in 19th century Russia. But the point is, no matter what the science brings us to and explores in terms of the created order and beauty of, of, of the world, the Christian response isn't just to say... Well, that's nice, but but rather, bless the Lord, oh my soul, right? So this psalm tells us how to do it. It it, it exemplifies it by doing it with Egyptian cosmology, but then it gives us a kind of framework for using whatever the science is. And we'll find that, you know, various church fathers had completely different cosmologies. They took the one from their day, right? And they were sure that, you know, that was the science. And, and they used that and explained, you know, the world on that basis. So we need to continue in that tradition and say, if we, if, if those who are involved in exploring the beauty and of the created order are telling us certain things, it's our job not to just leave it there. You know, it's, it's, our, it's incumbent on us to then take that and use that as a form of prayer right? And I've, you know, I've often reflected, you know, we get to that beautiful service of the blessing of the water at Theophany, which is famously a hymn of creation and so forth. And it celebrates the four elements, you know, which were the elements known, you know, at the time and everything. I'm, I'm waiting for the day when we can actually say, let's take all the elements. We have a periodic table of them now, right? Uh, with all of its complexity, can we make that you know, into a uh, a hymn uh, of of worship and, and prayer and, and so forth. And the, the the wonderful thing about science is it it tells a beautiful story. You know, whether you're a you know a, a chemist who's you know aware of the you know kind of molecular reactions and, and and so forth, and how wonderfully the world is made of just these few elements and so forth. Or you're a biologist, you know, looking at how life comes into being, or whether you're a physicist just in awe at the weirdness of creation, right? The way that, you know, fundamentally the the world is based on light, you know, in in some really uh, interesting ways. I mean, all of those are opportunities for worship. And this psalm teaches us to take that and to to apply it. What a wonderful gift we could give back to science, you know, because too many scientists think they're doing this work atheistically right that they, they have to be doing it without reference to god because of course you know they've been told that because christians have been saying for a while now that science and faith are incompatible well how wonderful would it be if we could bring back to them the opportunity to say all this awe and wonder you're experiencing bless the lord oh my soul you know and and that would be a, a real opportunity for us to to demonstrate that these things are not incompatible at all in fact it's the very purpose of science is to show us how to glorify God in in this particular dimension of creation.
0: Well, thank you very much. Those were the aspects of Psalm one hundred three and how it would affect how it affects my life outside of vespers. That's what I wanted to talk about today. Is there anything that you wanted to bring in specifically, Father Jeffrey?
1: One thing that just struck me this past uh, Saturday evening at at vigil uh, is just how this theme of creation, you know, that we've said starts, you know, the Vespers service here in, in such a profound way. And I think we've explored, you know, many dimensions of, of that now, but it, it actually does frame the entire, you know, vigil service. And I was struck because at the end of the vigil, almost the last prayer that we have uh, in matins, where we have a prayer at the bowing of heads, um, we address God in this way. O Holy Lord, who dwell, uh, I'm going to actually, I'll I'll put it into um, um, the modern language that we're using here. So, okay, so I'll try again. So we we address God in this way. O Holy Lord, dwelling on high and regarding the humble of heart, with your all-seeing eye, you behold all creation. Right? So we started the vigil service with this beautiful ordering of creation, the setting of the stage and everything. And the, we've now gone through, we're gonna talk a lot about the different aspects of, of Vespers and then later Matins and so forth, which talk about light in this profound way and so forth. But one of the last things we evoke again is that God beholds, all creation with his all-seeing eye. He's the one looking after everything. So I just thought I was struck in a kind of new way based on our conversations that how the entire service of the All-Night Vigil is framed by this idea that, and this truth, really, that God has created all and continues to look after all, continues to create all, continues to, to, to pay attention to every aspect of his creation. And I think that you know, if we learn nothing else from our services but that, I think we'll be in a good place.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.